If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and of course, use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched The Hate You Give so that we can study stakes. This 2018 film was directed by George Tillman Jr. from a screenplay by Audrey Wells, and it's based on the novel by Angie Thomas. Now, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And of course, we'd love it if you could give the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Just go to the show's landing page, scroll to the bottom, and click the stars. It's that simple. All right, Melanie, what do you have for the genres for The Hate You Give? Okay, so this week I have for the global um, uh, society political story because we see shifts in the personal power, but I also think there's limited shifts in the larger power dynamics going on. So uh, what I'm saying there is that I it, that's what I think it is, um, but it's not quite working all, all the way through. But anyway, that's just, you know, it's probably a bit contentious, but... For the secondary genre, I have a worldview maturation because Star's arc takes her from not belonging to either world um, to being comfortable with who she is in both worlds. So, she, you know, she's navigated a path in a conflicted world. So that's what I've got there. What about you? Well, um, for the global genre, I also say it's society. And for the secondary genre, um, I'm calling it a worldview education story. Um, still in the worldview, but I'm seeing it slightly differently because I think Star has learned what's really important in life, and that's to stand up for what's right rather than laying low and keeping your head down. So how did you get on with your study of stakes? Well, I thought the stakes were really presented you know, how they're presented in this movie and how they're interconnected is really fascinating. And one of the things that I thought about a lot during the week was how what's really at stake isn't fully revealed, I think, until right at the end of the movie, although the setup is there from the start. Now, I thought that was really good. Now, I'm not saying, though, that this movie is perfect. I think there's a lot of clunkiness in it. But I think it's fascinating to see the range and the scope of the stakes, you know, that go from the personal to the societal. So, you know, for me, this was a really interesting study in that, in an imperfect, what I think is a bit of an imperfect movie. Now, I'm going to elaborate on the scope of the stakes as I outline how the stakes are established and also how they play out in this film. Now, you know, so we'll start at the beginning, right? So the opening scene does a really good job of putting everything this movie is about at the front and centre of our attention. So, you know, we are there, we are present for the talk that Maverick gives to his family and it clearly lays out the life and death stakes for African-Americans when dealing with the police. So Maverick, who's Star's father, also gives Star and Seven the Black Panther 10-point program, 
We also see very clearly that family is at the heart of this movie too. And Star's voiceover explains who she is, how old she is or how old she was when she got the talk how and how old her brothers were. She also explains in this voiceover who her parents are and we get a glimpse of the complicated family dynamic that's at play for the Carters and also for the larger Garden Heights community. We hear Star explain to the audience that she's in identity no man's land. She personally doesn't belong in garden in the Garden Heights neighbourhood, but she also doesn't belong at her predominantly Anglo-Saxon private school called Williamson. Her object of desire, therefore, is to remain as inconspicuous as possible in both worlds. So the voiceover summarises the family's situation and also states Maverick's object of desire, right, which is to stay in Garden Heights because that's where the Carters belong and that's where their people are. Now, when I thought about how the stakes in this movie work, the image that came to mind was concentric circles. So there's the societal life and death threat of being an African-American and the injustices of the formal law enforcement system. There's the neighbourhood culture and the crime and the gang subculture and the seemingly never-ending cycle of conflict that this creates. And it's also life and death in that community just going to school in Garden Heights, and we hear about that via Star's story about her friend Natasha. So Star's school is also a microcosm of the broader social division, but the Carter kids go there so that they don't make the same mistakes that Lisa and Maverick made as teenagers. So Lisa, the mother, got out of Garden Heights and wants the same for her kids. So that's the object of her desire. And then there's King, who is the drug crime lord in Garden Heights, and his relationship with Star's family. So this is a really wonderful interconnected way that the whole movie sort of interplays and comes together. So King's connection links to Maverick, who actually did time in prison for King. And there's also Khalil, who's Star's friend, who works for King selling drugs. And then the stakes for those who work for King, you know, range from wealth and generating monetary wealth and protection, but also crime and imprisonment and a life of violence. And the complicating factor that really gets to the heart of um, the personal story is that King is also Seven's stepfather. So he has direct access to Maverick's eldest son. Now Maverick can't completely get away from King's orbit, which is another one of Maverick's objects of desire. So he doesn't want King in their lives. He doesn't want anything to do with the world that King operates. And King's object of desire is to maintain his control and his influence in Garden Heights, right, and not get caught or penalised for the activities that he oversees. So, and it's this not getting caught, right, that's really important. 
And there's also Star's uncle, Carlos, who's a police officer. So Carlos adds complexity to Star's world because he's both family and law enforcement. And his view of all the events that happen in the movie is very different from the people in Star's neighbourhood. So I really like Carlos as a character. He adds a nuance that I think um, is missing probably from other parts of, of the story and you know, adds a level of conflict that plays out for Star as well. And at the centre of the stakes circles is Star. You know, we see her and it's her story, but then it's each member of her family that sort of form a ring outside of her, the two communities that form her world, and then the larger institutions that represent society and injustice. So I really do kind of like this image in my head that I've got of concentric circles about how this story works and the stakes at each level of that circle. Now, of course, it's not neat. Of course, there's blurring, but it's a really, I think it was a really helpful frame for me this week when I was looking at stakes. Right. And I just want to now sort of delve into stakes a little bit more and talk about some ways to understand the stakes using the um, using a statement called the if-then statement and how that works to how that works to help you develop and also create stakes. You know, so I have spoken in previous episodes this season about how the stakes depend upon all the possible events that could happen and the severity of the consequences if the events are realised. So in a, a, a really good way to describe some of these events and to understand what's at stake at certain points in a story is to use this if-then statement. Now, I found this on the Writers Helping Writers website in an article titled Six Tricks to Layer on Stakes, written by September Forks. So, for example, if Star doesn't speak up about the events on the night that Khalil was killed, then she will live with the guilt of not using her voice to stand up for him and to tell his story. If Star doesn't accept her blackness, then she'll continue to live in no man's land in terms of her identity and her, her life. If Star doesn't use her voice to shine bright, then Maverick will be disappointed in her. So hopefully that shows how using if-then statements can really help us as writers understand what's at stake at any given point of the story. And it can be used as a diagnostic tool, right, to make sure that you're moving either closer to or further away from your objects of desire or your character's objects of desire, I should say. <laughs> we can also say, right, the reverse statements and I think this is really important because not all the consequences are always negative and sometimes I think we focus too much on negative consequences, but we can turn these if-what statements around as well, right? So, for example, if Star uses her voice to stand up for Khalil, then she will live up to the name her father gave her. And I really do think it's helpful to look at stakes in a positive way so we look at the opportunity to move closer to the objects of desire 
instead of always looking at the negative consequences of moving away from the object of desire. And I think that's a really key thing to, a a key tool to have in your toolkit as you're writing and thinking about the stakes and how to look at the stakes from your character's point of view. You know, the examples that I've given for Star, I think, demonstrate also how the concentric circles around her provide different stakes throughout the story. But all the circles intersect at the climactic moment of the story and that's when Sakani pulls the gun on King. So there are representatives from each circle in this scene and that is why it's the climactic moment and really important. So we have the police, we have King, we have Maverick, we have the shop owners, so the local community. There's Lisa, Carlos, Star and Seven. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, this is where what's really at stake becomes apparent. So Sakani, just like Star and Seven, has a name that is full of meaning. And Sakani means joy. And like all children, they are sponges and observers of life and what goes on around them. And when Sakani points the gun at King, we see how the future is impacted by the present. And the present is filled with prejudice. It's filled with injustice, conflict and violence and also death. And Sakani is symbolic of the cycle repeating itself in the very young. So he becomes the product of all the conflict and hate in his immediate world. And if nothing changes in his world, then the cycle will continue. Now, I don't think that this is smoothly executed at all. Please don't get me wrong. But it's a very clear setup and it's a very clear message that the film is trying to convey. So, you know, what is at stake for the young people that live in this world? All right, so I also want to talk just very quickly this week about stakes and conflict. And I want to, because they do intersect and I have avoided talking about it this season so far, so I think I've got to bite the bullet and talk about it this week. So if stakes are the consequences of the events that threaten a character's ability to achieve their object of desire and conflict is a struggle of interest, opinion, or even principles, then we can start to see how the stakes can cause conflict. So, for example, Star must change in this movie. She must go from wanting to remain inconspicuous to becoming the primary witness in a grand jury hearing about Khalil's death and wanting justice for him. So this is an inner conflict for Star. As her objects of desire change, it causes tension within her. So the degree of tension is a direct result of the degree of change. So not only does the audience understand how important the new object of desire is to a protagonist, but they also understand how difficult it is for the protagonist to make the change. And the internal change that must occur and the tension it creates in the character also contributes to understanding what's at stake for the character. 
So it's not only the external outcome, but the internal price that Star must pay to keep seeking justice for Khalil. So that's very much internal conflict. Now there is really obvious external conflict between the characters in The Hate You Give. And a lot of the time it can be easier to see, right? Because there's, you know, there's just more of it and it's more obvious. Now again, Star's object of desire is to tell Khalil's story and to tell the truth about what happened on the night Khalil was shot. But if she tells Khalil's story, then she tells people that Khalil was working for King and that may have a consequence for King that he may go to jail. And King doesn't want to go to jail, right? So if here we go, building stakes again. So if King threatens Star, then she may keep quiet. If Star doesn't keep quiet, then King will try to kill her. So you can see there how I've used the if-then statement to help with the cause and effect and to demonstrate how stakes are raised. And again, when the stakes are raised, the conflict is increased. So the stakes for each of these characters and their objects of desire put them in direct opposition to each other. So when one acts, the other characters wear the consequences of those outcomes. So I think that's really important to start thinking about how objects of desire, what's at stake, start playing out and helping people create conflict in their stories. And maybe I'll delve into that a little bit more as we go through the season. But just to wrap up, by looking at the stakes in this movie as concentric circles, I've been able to see how the stakes at the larger societal level represented by characters such as the police, lawyers, protesters and gangs intersect at the personal level, which is represented by the school, the community, the Carter family and in particular STAR. So it's just something to think about and and creating a mental model sometimes about how those stakes play off against each other. All right, Valerie, how did you go this week with empathy in The Hate You Give? Okay, well... I've given this film quite a bit of thought this week. Given the subject matter, honestly, I expected it to be better. (laughs) But it feels to me as though there was such a rush to get it to market, given the environment and the events at the time, that filmmakers phoned in the storytelling. And I got to say, I'm disappointed because this is too important to be given short shrift. I'd love to see other films on the same topic where the filmmakers have taken their time and have told the story better. Uh, Fruitvale Station, maybe. I I don't know. I'd I'd have to do some research on it. Now, I should say that all my comments this week are about the film, not the novel, because I haven't read the novel. I should also say that I have a cold this week, so please forgive the frog in my voice. (laughs) Okay, my topic this season is empathy, what it is and how to create it. Broadly speaking, Empathy refers to a reader's emotional engagement with a story, specifically that there's something about the protagonist's experience that resonates with the reader and that the reader recognizes as familiar. The protagonist is therefore like the reader in some way. When it comes to the hate you give, well, I'm not even sure where to start on this one. So I don't know, Melanie, maybe I'll just start at the beginning. Okay. (laughs) 
So I spent two seasons talking about the beginning, middle, and end of stories and how they work. If you haven't heard those episodes, please go back and check them out because there's lots of information. Um, I'm going to assume you've heard them as I continue. The first problem with this movie, as far as I'm concerned, is that they've squandered the first act or what should be the first act. By first act, I mean the first 30 minutes of the movie. Actually, I think it's like 27, 28 minutes in this uh, film. It's entirely exposition. It's a big old information dump with huge amounts of voiceover. That means there isn't anything for the audience to engage emotionally with. We have no empathy because there's nothing to empathize with. It's like watching a report. It's, it's quite dry, actually, and it's devoid of emotion. In fact, it could be entirely removed without negatively impacting the story because the information that has been dumped in the opening comes up again elsewhere. Let me give you just one example. In the opening, Star tells us in voiceover that there are two versions of her, the Garden Heights version and the Williamson version. This voiceover is more than a minute long, which is forever in film time. And the action that's happening on screen is really mundane. It's like B-roll footage. Later in the movie, this is the part where Star goes to the prom and she's sitting with Chris in limousine. She says this to him. I have to hide who I am every single day. When I'm at home, I can't be too Williamson. When I'm here, I can't be too Garden Heights. So this takes 10 seconds for the actress to deliver these lines. So the idea of there being two versions of Star comes up organically here in a conversation with her boyfriend. And if the script had been tighter, the audience would have perceived these two versions of her without having to have a voiceover tell it to us. What's more, the second time the idea is delivered, it does nothing for the audience engagement because we already know it. It's old ground for us. When you're covering old ground for your reader, this is when your reader puts the book down. It's not interesting. So it would have been much more effective if the filmmakers had created working scenes at Williamson that allowed the audience to see how Star behaves there and working scenes in Garden Heights to show us what she's like in Garden Heights. We would have understood what was going on. Audiences are clever. Speaking of working scenes, there aren't any in the first 27, 28 minutes, which should be act one. Now there are two segments that approach working scenes, but both of them fizzle out. The first is when Star and Chris patch things up. Now, if this was a properly working scene, we'd see that the decision to forgive Chris is a true dilemma for Star we'd see that she genuinely is torn over what to do. But the truth is, we can tell from her body language that she's going to forgive him. Her claim that she's going to go all Beyonce on him is nothing but bravado. And we have seen exactly this type of scene. You know, the teen couple at the locker in a school hallway. We've seen it so many times that we know exactly what, how it's going to play out and what's going to happen. The second is when Star goes to the party in Garden Heights with Kenya. Now, Kenya wants to beat up another girl and assumes Star is going to back her up. There is real tension building up here, and I did notice that I was becoming more engaged with the narrative at this point. Anticipating the confrontation was engaging me emotionally, and I was starting to feel anxious for Star's safety. But then the tension evaporates, and it goes so quickly that all I felt was annoyance with the storytelling. And it evaporates 
because it's clear that Starr has no intention of getting involved in Kenya's drama. It's also clear that beyond saying a few nasty words for Starr, Kenya isn't going to cause Starr any problems. There won't be any ramifications for Starr for having refused to participate. Nothing is at stake, right, Melanie? Nothing's at stake for Starr in this scene. That's why it's not working. Now, Shots are fired at this party, but Star gets out of there so easily and gets to safety so quickly that we don't have a chance to feel any anxiety or tension or pressure. Just all of a sudden she's gone. So as writers, what we want to do is engage our readers emotionally. That means hook our reader in the first 10 pages or um, 10 minutes of a film then our challenge is to continue to engage them in the story all the way to the end. As I said, The Hate You Give squanders the first 27, 28 minutes of the movie. There isn't anything for us to engage with. Nothing really happens. It's establishing the environment and the characters that exist within this environment, and we can certainly appreciate that it's a difficult situation, (laughs) you know, to put it mildly, but emotionally... It has the effect of keeping us at a distance. Now, a caveat to this. If the audience member has lived exactly the same circumstances as the protagonist, then he or she may very well be emotionally engaged right out of the gate. But our goal as writers is to get our readers to emotionally engage with our protagonists, regardless of whether the specifics of the situation is something that the audience has personal experience with. The thing that we're empathizing with is the emotion the character feels because of the situation she finds herself in. And in the first 27, 28 minutes, we don't get any sense of what Star is feeling. Contrast this to, say, Harry Potter. Now, I have never been an 11-year-old boy, and I certainly was never forced to sleep under the stairs, (laughs) and I wasn't mistreated by those who were looking after me. So none of the details of my experience correspond with the details of Harry's experience. However, I've certainly felt lonely and I've certainly felt like I was the outsider. So this is the point of emotional connection or empathy in the opening pages of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. At the 25 minute mark of The Hate You Give, Khalil gets pulled over by the police. Now this is when the story actually starts, in my opinion. This should have been the opening scene. The inciting incident then is at the 27, 28 minute mark when Khalil is shot. So another issue with this film is that most of the characters are flat stereotypes. Given the subject matter, honestly, I yes, I was expecting a far more nuanced cast of characters. Star's an exception, and so is her father Maverick. Although I suspect that in the case of Maverick, it has more to do with Russell Hornsby's acting rather than the content of the script he was given. I mean, other than that, all the characters are exactly who they seem to be. King is a stereotypical drug lord. Haley is a stereotypical rich white girl. Kenya and Aisha are stereotypes. 115 is a stereotype. We've seen them all dozens of times before. And the thing is that with this particular subject matter, there's loads of room to give these characters depth and dimension. We get a little glimpse of it in Aisha when she sends her daughters away with Star and Chris when they have come to Rescue 7. But there's so much more to be mined here. Kenya isn't afraid of King at all. In fact, she emulates him, 
So there's room for her character to grow too. There's room for Seven's character to have dimension. And there's even room for King to have a layer. And Anthony Mackie is more than capable of portraying it had he been given the chance. Now, I spoke last week about likable characters and how that's not the goal. What we want is to develop a cast of fascinating characters. Fascination is what we're after, and that comes when characters have layers. So at a minimum, our readers must empathize with our protagonist. But when you have a whole cast of characters who are layered and nuanced, then the whole story's better, and the reader becomes much more engaged and involved emotionally. Alrighty, last season I went on and on ad nauseum about plot structure or story form or the shape of story. I don't know what to call it. To be honest, I'm grappling with a precise description. But the point is that as artists, we've got to make a conscious choice about the way we're going to present our stories. And that decision is based on things like whether our protagonist is active or passive, whether the conflict is external or internal, and all that good stuff. Star is mostly a passive protagonist. Now that would indicate that a mini plot form would suit her story well. The whole point of the hate you give is about taking action when you know something is wrong. Star is a young woman who has made a conscious choice to not take action. She has made an art of keeping her head down, of laying low, of not drawing any undue attention to herself. Now, what I like about this is that there's a very good story reason for Star's passive behavior. It's about survival for her. It's about creating a better, safer life for herself. Star's object of desire for most of the film is to avoid confrontation. Now, this is very difficult to pull off because conflict is the beating heart of story. And Melanie, you were just talking about conflict. And it's the protagonist who has to be involved in that conflict, whether it's in the external environment or it's whether it's within the character herself. Now, in terms of passive protagonists, Glenn Close's character in The Wife, Joan, is one of the best I have ever seen in a movie. And her situation, believe it or not, is very similar to Star's. They both want to keep their heads down and not make any waves. And it's a matter of survival for them both. But The Wife is a far superior script. And Glenn Close is a much more experienced actress. Seriously, if you have not seen The Wife, do yourself a favor and check it out. There are close-ups of just Glenn Close's face. She says nothing. She does nothing. Her facial expression barely changes. Yet somehow she's conveying myriad emotions. Amanda Stenberg is, she's much younger and she doesn't have the same acting experience. So it's unfair to criticize her performance. I'm not going to do that. I am certainly not an acting critic. However, I do believe that the script could have given her more to work with. There are ways to externalize the internal. Film is a visual medium, so it's essential for a scriptwriter to know how to do that. Likewise, it's essential for a novelist to know how to internalize the external. So what could filmmakers have done to give Stenberg something to work with and to give the audience something to watch because it's a movie and connect with emotionally? Well, we can certainly understand and respect Star's desire to lay low. But there should have been working scenes 
that showed Star struggling with her decision to stay quiet. Those scenes would start small. For example, her mother could tell her to stay quiet about what she knows so she doesn't jeopardize her life or her future. Star could simply ask a question about that, or she could ask a question about why she's still alive when her two best friends are dead. Through these questions, which would escalate in severity, in depth, in scale, we would see Star grappling with her decision to say nothing. Another passive protagonist that we saw recently was Nick Carraway in Gatsby, but Nick is a voyeur. All the action's happening with other characters. He's very much on the outside looking in, and it has a lot to do with the framing story of that whole film. Star is also a voyeur, but she's on the inside. She's involved in the action, and it doesn't work well. This is why we need to consume stories widely, deeply, actively, and consistently. You wouldn't think that the wife and the hate you give have anything in common at all, and yet they have almost identical protagonists. I think that's really cool. This is where the story nerd in me comes right out. (laughs) All right, so for the first half in the movie, Star is a passive protagonist who is an integral part of the story's events, but not actively participating in them. It's not working well as a mini plot story because we don't get a clear sense of her inner turmoil, certainly not enough to feel and share in her inner turmoil. At about an hour and two minutes into the film, so this is the second half of the movie, Star acquires an object of desire at long last. Remember, an object of desire is something the protagonist wants as a result of the inciting incident. The inciting incident is Khalil getting shot. So her object of desire is to be a much better friend to Khalil than she was to Natasha, who is the little girl who got shot when she was 10 years old. And to do this, Star is going to have to speak up. She's going to have to put her head above the parapet and risk getting it shot off. And this is when our empathy kicks in. No matter what the specifics of our circumstances, at some point or another, we've all been faced with the choice of speaking up when we know something is wrong. And we've all had to consider the possible consequences of speaking up. We know that there's a very good chance that we'll get shot down, metaphorically, or in Star's case, (laughs) literally. This is what cancel culture is all about, right? People stay quiet because they don't want to get canceled. They don't want to lose their jobs or attract trolls or worse. So at an hour and two minutes, Star acquires an object of desire, but it isn't until an hour and eight minutes that she takes action by giving an interview. Then she films the police attacking her father and she's full of remorse. She thinks that she should have stayed quiet. Her father tells her that when she's ready to talk, she should talk and not let anyone force her to be quiet. Now, this is really late in the movie. It's an hour and 15 minutes in. Oi, with the poodles already. From here to the end, Star is an active protagonist. So this means that we're starting to move more toward an arc plot story. But there's less than an hour of airtime left. So Star's journey from someone who's afraid to speak up to someone who steps into her power and insists on being heard is crammed into a relatively small space. The filmmakers, they just simply don't have time to develop it the way it deserves to be developed, in my opinion. So... All of this to say that in terms of empathy, I think this is a great example of what not to do. 
If the first 27, 28 minutes were simply deleted, it would instantly improve the whole presentation of the story. With respect to empathy, the audience or reader is empathizing with the character and the emotions she's experiencing. Our empathy isn't attached to the specifics of the situation. And this is something that we as fiction writers need to remember. If we rely on the specifics of the situation to attract an audience, first of all, we're limiting our audience to only those people who have uh, shared that specific situation or that specific experience. Secondly, if that was what was needed to generate empathy, then fantasy, sci-fi, historical and dystopian novels and any story that takes place in a reality that is anything other than a contemporary society wouldn't work. They wouldn't attract an audience because none of us living today has any experience in any of those alternate realities. So when we talk about specificity, Yes, we want to create a specific and detailed situation for our character to be in and react to. But what the reader is connecting to emotionally is what the character is feeling as a result of those specific circumstances. It's the specific feeling the character is experiencing as a result of her circumstances, not the specifics of the circumstances themselves. So... The circumstances are specific. The specific feeling that arises as a result of those circumstances is universal. I wonder how many times I said circumstances and specific in the last minute. Anyway, hopefully, hopefully I've made my point and that it's clear. Alrighty, Melanie, um, what is the action step for today? All right. So the action step today is if you are writing a society story, then try looking at your characters and what aspects of society they represent. Then use the concentric circle model to look at what's at stake for those characters. The further away from the centre of the circles the characters are, the more reflective of society their stake should be. The closer to the centre, the more personal the characters' stakes are. And that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Oh, I'm looking forward to this one. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to get Melanie's tips about books to help you read like a writer, visit her on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill Author, or find out more about her at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm -hmm.